see. We're on a mission from God. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Koreshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is a longtime online friend who I ended up making friends with offline too. He is a brilliant mind and an activist for folks with disabilities. And he is just one of the coolest, smartest people I know. And I'm thrilled that he's going to speak with me today because I know he has lots of interesting things to say. This is Paul Wiener. Hi, Paul. Hello. Blushing a bit now. <laughs> you are you are so interesting. And like we met, quote unquote, met on Twitter way more like 10 years ago, maybe? Um, something like that, yeah. On the Maddow stream, because we used to tweet every night to uh, the Rachel Maddow show. And then I just decided that, you know, you were so rad. I had to be Facebook friends with you, too. <laughs> And then we ended up just like meeting two or three times in person whenever, whenever I'd travel. And it's such a pleasure. Like, I, I feel like we're longtime friends. I guess we are, but we it, are. it doesn't feel like you're a friend that I've only seen in person like three times in 10 years. So, I mean, that's kind of how my friendships usually work just because so much of my social life is online. So yeah. my online friends are my real friends. There's no divide. It's not weird to me that they're, people I've known for decades I've never actually met. I, I definitely want to talk to you about this because I think more than anyone else, you're one of those people who has been inhabiting online spaces for a long time. You have a really great understanding of, you know, what it means to have relationships online. And, you know, the, and this is the thing that everybody's talking about right now because of the pandemic and people going on, but folks like you have been doing this for a long time. So we can definitely talk about that. But the first thing I want to do, as you probably know, as a loyal listener of the podcast, is ask you some icebreaker questions. Great. You ready? Go for it. <laughs> okay. All right. My first question is, what is the last thing you watched on TV? Uh, well, I was just uh, re-watching an old episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, good. It's uh, I've been slowly going through i'm up to season 10 now it's a nice comfort show uh -huh. turn your brain off and just relax into it and let them be silly i love that show i watch it regularly i watch it i have netflix so they have some episodes on netflix um mm -hmm. i find it hilarious right like that is my sense of humor and yeah it's ridiculous or whatever but like i will watch the same episode multiple times and still crack up each time it's amazing how much they can pack into one episode and uh are they making them anymore yeah so netflix picked it up they did a kickstarter and showed like it was like the highest backed kickstarter ever for a while there oh. and so Net netflix picked it up for two seasons and then decided not to renew it so they just during the pandemic did another kickstarter to launch their own website and make new episodes that way and i chipped in for that and they're starting production already and hoping to have an episode ready by the end of the year, I think. So I used to watch this show back in the 90s, right? Like it's an old show. 
Yes. But I'm assuming that it like these different iterations, it's because the cast changes, obviously, and whatever. So I'm I'm just curious to know, like, it was initially conceptualized. Was it on Comedy Central, maybe? Is that right? Yeah, it was back then it was the Comedy Channel. They were the first to bring it national. They actually picked it up from a local Minneapolis station that they were just doing it locally. And it was all just really, really super low budget and um, they were still trying to figure out how to do it. And then Comedy Central picked it up from there. Okay. So I watched it when it was on Comedy Central. And then it kind of went away for a while. And then it came back at some point. And then Netflix took it over. So it ran for 10 years going from Comedy Central to the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, okay. And then it went off the air and the cast split off and did their own things. There's Riff Tracks, which has been running continuously for several years now doing their own shows without the puppets, just sort of making fun of the movies. Mm -hmm. Some other cast members did Cinematic Titanic, which was a touring live show of them doing that on stage. I got to go to one of their last ever shows, and that was a lot of fun. And then a couple of them now are doing a YouTube show called The Mads Are Back. They do uh, a movie every month. And then Netflix picked it up after it had been off the air for at least 10 years. Right. And then they dumped it because they're fools. I don't know. And then <laughs> and then the Netflix folks or the uh, MSD3K people were like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll find a way to fund it ourselves. Yep. Pretty much. Good. Good for them. I, I mean, it's, it's an enduring show, right? I don't understand why Netflix doesn't want it, but maybe it's better in the long run. Maybe if they fund it themselves, they'll have more creative control or whatever. Yeah, I'm hoping. And they'll be working remotely so they can bring in guests from like anywhere at, without having to fly people in for the weekend. Good. Uh, so that should be interesting. I was a little skeptical of the new version just because, oh, you're making your own website where you're going to be doing this. We already have riff tracks and you're just the other half of the cast, but they'll be doing it with the robots and with live chat so that people can watch together and i think it'll be interesting to see how that uh, shapes up they're still trying to build it out that sounds fun but the show kind of invented the internet in some ways where like you're sitting back and just commenting on, on it as it happens with this sarcastic humor and pop culture references and mm -hmm. i think a lot of our culture now can be traced back to that even if people haven't directly seen the show themselves that's interesting i hadn't thought of I hadn't thought of that. But you're right. The same kind of humor and memification of things, they had started that way back before social media as we know it existed. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Good. All right. Uh, the second icebreaker question is, what was the last book that you read? Uh, I haven't really been reading proper books for years now. With the fibromyalgia, I get brain fog and I find that by the time I get to the bottom of the page, I've forgotten what it said at the top. And it's just been kind of a headache trying to get myself into the world of a novel enough that I'm really enjoying it without losing track of everything that makes it what it is. I still read comic books from time to time. And there's a web novel that a friend is doing called Prophecy Approved Companion, where the main character is an NPC in an experimental video game who has developed artificial intelligence and doesn't know that it's a game world, but is like trying to make sense of the world around her. 
Um, and that's been pretty interesting to read. And it's just like a page every few days. So it's enough that uh, I can handle it. So what exactly is a web novel? So there's a site called Royal Road. And I guess it kind of harkens back to serial publishing uh-huh. way back in the day where like, you'd publish a story one chapter at a time in some magazine or something. Only this is people doing it themselves on this website. And so it just, every few days or whatever uh, schedule they set, you get a new chapter of the story. And some people are like doing interactive things or experimenting, trying to work mm-hmm. audience feedback into what happens. It's a relatively new medium, but I mean, serial storytelling goes back to from before I was born. So yeah, for sure. It's But it's the modern iteration of that. Oh, that's pretty cool. I just actually pulled it up and it looks super interesting. Is it all a certain genre or are there several genres that are represented here? Uh, Well, this story is just that story, but uh, there are certainly other genres. So webcomic I read called Romantically Apocalyptic, which takes place in a post-apocalyptic world, obviously. It's made with digital art where they take pictures of like weird-looking abandoned buildings in the real world and then use Photoshop to manipulate them mm. and illustrate the story that way. And they create this whole elaborate fantasy world of like nanotechnology and monsters and you know the robot apocalypse and everything. And there's a lot of strange humor to it and just like surrealistic things happening and you just have to kind of roll with it. Yeah. So they've moved that over to Royal Road as well. And the same author is trying his hand at a few other stories there of more of the sci-fi genre, one that takes place on board a spaceship and like all of humanity is gone. And there's like this one guy who's supposed to repair the thing and has no idea what's going on and what's developed inside the ship. And then, the ship AI is perhaps not trustworthy. And that's the one that I saw that they were trying to work in audience feedback where people commenting are taken, their words are taken and become comments made by some of the malfunctioning robots on the ship. Oh my God, this and is so interesting. Yeah, it's been fun. Wow. I love that, actually. I, you know, so I, I, I actually really like the idea of uh, serial like serial novels or serial storytelling um, and I I found out that that was actually how Crime and Punishment which is one of my favorite books ever hmm. uh, uh, Crime and Punishment was written and so ever since I found that out I was like I really want to do that I want to and and only start with the loosest of outline and then kind of allow myself to see if I can keep it going like see how long I can keep this yarn going right um, right which is, to me, it's just a, like a specific kind of challenge, right? It's not about necessarily completing a story. It's about developing your storytelling or, or honing your storytelling skills so that you're able to be nimble, right? When things don't work out exactly the way you want them to. Yeah, I kind of tried that. I used to write fanfic. I started off with uh, Lois and Clark, The New, New Adventures of Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a TV show back in the 90s, uh-huh. and it was kind of my first online fandom a lot of the fanfic writers were, I felt better than the writers of the show itself. It was an amazing community to be part of. And I still have friends from that I met there even now. 
met some of my best friends that way. And I used to sometimes write just sort of short, silly stories that were just humor. And I tried once one thing that kind of was like a D&D campaign with the readers being the players. Mm-hmm. So I set up this thing of like Superman's missing and Lois has to figure out what's going on. And every chapter would end with an audience poll of what should she do next? Mm-hmm. And then I would try to figure out, okay, if that's what she's doing, then what happens and write through the story. And that was a lot of fun to do. That's really great. I, so, you know, the thing about social media is that, that like it, it's basically transformed the way that we consume other types of media, right? Because we've found ways to fold it in. So, for example, the way that me, that you and I met watching the Rachel Maddow show, but instead of just watching it, we were also live tweeting it, right? And so, right. and then they, even the, the, you know, the folks who were producing the show would have at times like acknowledge the, you know, the folks that were tweeting. And it was just a really different way to experience TV for me. That was like the first time I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I've seen this happen with lots of other TV shows, right? And fandoms. But this idea of bringing an audience into novel writing is so fascinating, right? Because it's something that's happening. Like it's that I don't know that that's ever been done before, right? Because there's generally not a live audience in the same way that there is for television or singing or uh, any of that kind of stuff, right? The theater, whatever. And so to actually be able to to have an audience that you engage with as you're writing this long form story is pretty new, I think. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But yeah, that's new. And it's new that you're able to interact with the audience for some a written story in real time so that right. it's even possible. Right. You know, there's, I, I've read a lot of stuff about, you know, people pulling their hair and gnashing their teeth about the death of the, the novel. And I don't think that it, I don't think that it has died, but maybe what it's doing is it's transforming into a, a kind of engagement, a kind of media that isn't just one way anymore. And that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, novels are still around and people are still reading not as much as they used to because they've got so many other options. Right. But yeah, there are new emerging forms of it that are uh, being explored and that's pretty cool. Yep. Okay. Uh, We have one more icebreaker question and that is what did you have for breakfast? See, I was going to say like the same thing I have for every day, Kinky, but um, (laughs) I uh, actually ran out of blueberry muffins and so I can't really eat much for breakfast. My stomach just will not wake up until at least a couple hours after the rest of me is awake, um, which was a huge argument with uh, the nursing staff when I first became diabetic. Mm -hmm. So I just have a very light breakfast. And this time I had gone to the local uh, farmer's market around the corner. It's there twice a week. It was my big excursion for the month. Um, I haven't been out very much lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lady there with a booth who was selling pumpkin bread. Oh. And that looked really good. And only after I bought the pumpkin bread and the cookies did I notice that they were marked vegan and gluten-free. Oh. Okay. Um, not quite what I'd been expecting. 
So it's not my mom's pumpkin bread, but it's still uh, pretty good. Is um, it? I, I can't imagine a delicious vegan gluten-free pumpkin bread, to be honest. Well, but I think the pumpkin bread is vegan and the cookies were gluten-free. Ah, okay. And neither one quite lived up to what I'd hoped, mm. but uh, they were better than I'd feared. So <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> okay. I think that is fair. That is a fair outcome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to mess up a chocolate cookie. Yeah, um, it's true. She called it reverse chocolate chip where it was chocolate batter and then white chocolate chips inside. Oh. And it tasted strongly of cocoa powder rather than, you know, because it was gluten-free. So there was no flour. There's no real batter. It was kind of a disc of uh, cocoa powder. And I'm not sure. I forget what else um, with chocolate chips in it. But that was still good. Yeah. All right. Um, A little more bitter than I would have liked. Not quite as chewy, but it's still a chocolate cookie. I'm not complaining. (laughs) I mean, I think it's fair. I've had, so, you know, and I've gone back and forth with my my eating habits or whatever. So I've experimented with all manner of things. So I, I went on one tangent where I was trying to make everything out of almond flour and it was a disaster. And so I have mad respect for people that are able to create at least reasonable facsimiles using like non-traditional ingredients. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, it is. Um, and then the rest of breakfast, I used to have a glass of milk. And then when I switched to an insulin pump with a continuous glucose monitor, I noticed that even though my lunchtime blood sugars had been good, I had never known that they were spiking up really high from the lactose in the milk um, for a couple of hours after breakfast. And I cannot drink plain water. It tastes awful. It makes me queasy. Mm. It's just not happening. And it's too warm to drink tea and I can't have anything else that's sugary. So I've been drinking diet soda for pretty much everything. And so for kind of the wake up flavor, I made, it's a knockoff Dr. Pepper. And then I mixed in cherry and vanilla syrups to make a caffeine-free diet cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper to have with my breakfast. Wow. Okay. This is a, this is very involved. You have put a lot into this particular breakfast, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Much more than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, good answer and very unusual answer. This was, uh, I think our ice is broken. This was great. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's let's jump off now and talk. There's two main things I want to talk to you about. Okay. And the, f- <laughs> and the first is, this is what I like about you, PG, is that you're uh, nimble when it comes to me communicating with you. Like, I, you, I, you, you're nonplussed. Anytime I've ever raised anything with you you're just like okay let's do this yeah i try to roll with things it's part of the whole zen mindset yeah for sure life's more fun that way agreed okay so two things first of all i want to talk to you about just health stuff in general because you are i mean i'll just say this and you stated it publicly many times you have many multiple serious health challenges that you were born with right? These are things that are part of who you are and you have suffered for most of your life at this point. And, you know, you are an interesting case because a lot of people who have this level of um, challenges, physical challenges, they're either not open about it, they don't talk about it very often, 
or they try when they do talk about it they try to make it seem like it's um like they're i don't know overcoming all the time and you're very blunt about <laughs> how shitty it is right you're very <laughs> clear that this is not a good scene that you are not happy with it that it, you're uncomfortable and you don't hold back about that and to me that's it's a similar thing with like uh, motherhood right like everybody's always talking about you know being a mom is this great thing and it's hard as hell right and so when i see women who are very honest about their struggles with being mothers i have enormous respect for that and in the same way i do you know i also have some physical challenges and i know that yours are much greater so i respect very much that you're you you don't hide it right like at, was that a conscious choice at one point did you just decide i am not going to put on a face i'm just going to live this out loud because it's who I am. So not exactly. I believe in open and honest communication and sharing knowledge. I don't have a religion so much as I believe in, I have like deep faith in the idea that if we all can just communicate the truth clearly and plainly to each other, that the entire world would be better off. And so part of it is just that, that I'm going to be honest with you. It's how I am. Like, if you're going to ask me, how are you expect to get a real answer? I'm not going to just be polite about it. I am like deeply uncomfortable with lying in any form. Mm -hmm. Part of it is that what you've seen for me is usually where I'm venting into online spaces with people I know, or sometimes I broadcast because it's Twitter now, but it's different there. I do mask a little more in uh real life where i try not to make people uncomfortable by letting them see quite how much pain i'm in yeah which sometimes makes it difficult with family who don't really understand um as well as i'd hoped mm -hmm. and i try to keep a cheerful face on things in general just because I think it's important to enjoy the good things as they come and be able to laugh and smile no matter what, or else you just get sucked down into gloom. So I'm never afraid to be silly and happy and smile, but I'm not going to pretend that things are okay when they're not. Yeah. Does that make people, what's the response to people, not necessarily your family, because you're, it's, that's a different case. So, you know, I mean, that's a, I, I would say that's a different set of challenges, but in general, whether you're meeting people online or offline, your honesty about it, what is the general response that you get from people? Um, not much. Really? I mean, there are people who have been going through similar things and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, say, oh, like, here's someone who's going through it who understands and is willing to be honest about it. And then that can start a conversation with us and we can talk about what they're going through and they'll know that I'll listen and really hear them and see where they're coming from. I've never had anyone go, Oh, you're talking about how much pain you're in, like screw you or whatever. If they don't like it, they can unfollow. That's their choice. I've tried to make it an opt-in filter for like when I was blogging years ago or on Facebook back when I used that um, so that I knew that if I was going to be talking about the worst of it, it would be two people that I trusted who knew what to expect and what they were getting into and had 
chosen to listen to that rather than just have it dumped on their heads. Do you ever find that people want to either like either tell you to just suck it up or that they they want to like one up you? <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten the suck it up thing once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, in uh like I've had I've told people about these sleeping disorders and how I am chronically exhausted to a level that most normal people will never understand. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten back, well, yeah, I get tired too. Mm -hmm. And like, no, this is qualitatively different. And someone like that, like I can try to explain it to them, but they're not interested in listening. So it's not going to go anywhere. Right. You know, I mean, I think it's a really difficult thing. I mean, I have my own issues, my, you know, I have family members that have serious issues that are the quote unquote invisible kind, you know, people just don't understand. And, and I think you made this point at some, you know, some other time when I was talking to you, these are, this is largely relative, right? Like, how do you measure pain? right? It's very relative and individualized. Mm -hmm. And so people only know what their own experience is. So when you say you're in pain, they think, oh, well, I mean, I've been in pain. And they, <laughs> they're they only able to use their own experience as a measure. And, uh, and I also think that when people tell you to suck it up, that's actually a, a sign of just not knowing what to say or do and not you know, maybe even being an empathetic person and not knowing what to say or do and just wanting it, the problem to go away. Like, I can't help you. So, oh my God, just, you know, stop telling me about it type thing. I think some of that is just, that's what people are taught. Um, like, oh, you hurt your foot, walk it off. And there's some aspect to it that may be helpful from time to time where you don't let yourself get bogged down in how much you're dealing with and you just focus on taking it one step at a time and working through it. But I think you also have to acknowledge reality and acknowledge your limits and know how far it's okay to push it. Also that it's okay to get help, that everyone needs help sometimes and there shouldn't be any shame in using a cane or using medication or getting treatment. Like, get what you need to make life easier and workable. And I think our culture has far too much shame in that. And it holds people back. It held me back for too long. I memorized paths across the kitchen where if I push off of this counter, I can grab onto the oven handle and then scoot myself along to bounce off to that counter. And that way, I can walk without having to worry about falling over or running out of strength in my legs. And yet it was still years of that before I went, you know, it's okay if I use mm. a cane, people aren't going to judge me for it. And if they do, that's their problem. Yep. Uh, it's not an easy, it's not an easy world, at least at this point. It never has been, I guess, but I hope in, in the future it will be easier for anyone who has to struggle, you know, with their mental, physical health, with environmental issues, whatever, to maintain this sense of dignity in a world that has really specific ideas about what it means to be valuable as a person. The, the weird part is, is that I think that people that actually fit into that 
are almost non-existent. <laughs> right? I think that there are so few people that live up to that ideal. And so we're all just walking around pretending that, you know, or hiding the parts of us that don't fit into that ideal. And that's why it's so refreshing to see people who don't give a shit, who are just like, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend, right? <laughs> this is how, this is reality. Um, and it's, that, you know, I mean, that gives other people the courage to speak up to. I hope so. And I think to some degree things are improving because we have social media and people are able to connect and form communities of mutual support and see that they're not alone in it. But yeah, you're right. I remember I was in elementary school and I came up with this theory that everyone has at some point something in their life that they can point mm -hmm. to and say, no one should have to live through that. And it's just most people hide it and you never see what's going on in someone else's life until you get to know them and dig down and see what's behind that facade. One of the biggest challenges that I've that I face on an ongoing basis, I think that we all face now, is that we are living these semi-public lives online. And because there is this kind of constant contact with different people in our networks, right? And I'm not talking about people that we know in real life or that we're friends with, you know, from childhood. I'm talking about people that we know online. And some of, some of them we may have never met, but over time we've developed relationship, kind of like you and I. And this idea that we have great insight into what one another is doing. I mean, you, you and I both know that people know what we tell them. You right. only know what I'm telling you. You have no idea about anything else. And yet, I, you know, I think this is just sort of like how people, how like people's cognitive abilities work, right? They just fill in the gaps. So they'll fill in whatever mm -hmm. gaps there are with their own experiences or opinions or feelings on the matter. And because of that, you're constantly being either misread or, or, um, you know, or misunderstood or challenged for things that were never even your intention or, you know, just flat out called out for things that aren't even correct, but, but somebody has inferred it about you. And I wonder what you have to say about that because you, you know, we, we started out talking about this. You are one of those people who has a huge amount of years, probably more than the average person at this point online, right? You started out, you're very technically savvy. Um, you started out in the early days of the internet, you're still going strong. And because of your health limitations, you also rely heavily on the internet for community and for connection. So how do you think we can do it better online? How do you think that we can prevent ourselves from making assumptions and taking advantage of what we see other people saying and doing and appreciate who they are or who they're showing to us, but also not behave as though we know everything about them, right? Making harsh, like I, I'm seeing specifically around making really harsh judgments about how they spend their time or their money or their energy or, you know, whatever. Like, how can we use online spaces to, to maintain great friendships and relationships and still kind of combat this human tendency to, um, I guess, to make things in our own image? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think 
I have a few different thoughts on that and different angles of how we we do fill in the blanks. If it's like someone you're crushing on, then you'll fill in the blanks with your projected hopes. If it's like someone that you've just encountered, you'll project um, your own point of view and your own way of seeing things and assume that the way you you would do it or is how they're doing it or what would drive me to say that. And so then you make assumptions about what's behind it. I think that's always going to be a problem no matter how you're interacting. But the problem with online spaces is that there are bigger gaps, particularly if you're in plain text, then you've lost all these nonverbal cues of tone of voice and facial expression and body posture and eye movement and all of that. So you're left with this just simple block of text and you have to infer from that what they meant and how they meant it. And that can go really wrong sometimes. I've had to face that numerous times over the years. And for me, it's give people the benefit of the doubt read it, step back, think, how else could this be read? And don't just jump and assume that it's the worst possible interpretation. Get to know them. If possible, you ask them, how did you mean this? Which doesn't always go well. I got blocked on Twitter by a prominent activist when something that he was making a slogan made no sense to me. And I honestly said i don't understand what you mean by this can you make sense of it for me and he just blocked me um and then shared his block list and now i'm blocked by a bunch of people i've never interacted with because of that one thing but you know that sort of thing is going to happen and from his point of view like he's an activist and he was in the middle of a large-scale protest and i am absolutely positive that he was getting swarmed by trolls And so, of course, you're going to be a little quicker on the block finger and a little less willing to give people the benefit of the doubt when you're getting uh, that sort of thing. So part of it is trying to understand their position and accept that people have their own lives and their own perspectives, and you will never truly fully understand another human being because you've never been in their shoes. Yep, I think that's right. I also think that... I mean, I think it's very challenging to have intimacy. And and I mean this in the most um, human way, right? Like to have intimacy means that there's a sense of safety and trust there. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to have that in a large public forum where anyone and everyone can chime in or, or challenge or troll or do whatever. And like you said, with with the activist, right, who he's a very if he's a very prominent person, you've put yourself out there and people are not going to like it doesn't matter who you are. People are not going to like you like half of the people are not going to like you. Right. And what that does is it it puts you under an enormous amount of pressure just by being there. And so, you know, that if you make one wrong step or if, you know, whatever you say, all these people are going to come down on you. And what that does is it makes you on guard. It removes your ability to feel safe and secure and to have trust. And because of that, it's hard to have long-term intimate relationships in these large forums, which is why 
I tend to like find people I like on Twitter and then find other ways to keep that relationship going. Right. <laughs> like if I like a person on Twitter, I will cultivate that into a relationship off of Twitter because I feel like Twitter is just not a, a space that's conducive for intimacy at all. Right. It's very public. It's very easy to get swarmed and it is not at all built for nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's built for immediacy and it's built for short form quips and it's not built for thoughtful conversations. Well, and I think that's fine. Like I, I appreciate it for what it is, but what I find deeply disturbing is that this is the platform that so many people who are actually in charge of things <laughs> have chosen <laughs> to be, you know, to make their primary uh, social presence. Uh, so, you know, you've got everybody from the president down to, you know, all of the journalists in America and various politicians at every level of government on Twitter. And you're like, is this where we're going to have our, is this where we're going to have our deliberative democracy take place? Because if so, we could not have chosen a worse place. I think every platform has its flaws and the pe- like those people are looking to connect with their constituents and their readers and they'll go where the people are. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why it's so hard to get everyone off of Facebook because that's where billions of people are. That's right. But I don't, it's not like they're using Twitter to shape their policy. I don't, a lot of those people I doubt even read most of the replies that they get. Mm. They're using Twitter to get their message out. They're using it as their soapbox. And to some degree, to keep an eye on the rest of the news in whatever sphere they're in. But they're not using it for a conversation. No, that's that's right. I don't know. I feel like there are other... I feel like there's a whole other class... Like, there's a class of pundits and journalists and people who are actually putting uh, messages out there who are using it in this way. Or trying to use it in this way. And I just... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's very rare that I see anything happen on there that I'm like, ah, this is this is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it can be fun sometimes where we're all just sharing the same joke. I miss the old hashtags where like, someone would just post some silly game of, you know, change the two words in the title of a song or something, and mm-hmm. all of Twitter would share in that and try to top each other and spread their favorite ones and... There was a joy to it, and I think we've kind of moved past that on the platform. But I'm not even sure where to go next. Like, I know TikTok is the up-and-coming thing, but I can't see myself doing video. Yeah. And I'm not generally in the mood to consume that sort of video. Right. Well, that's the thing, is that TikTok is much more... uh, like. It's much more uh, of a performance platform than it is a community, right? And I think it's great. Again, it's great for what it's good, you know, for what it's made for. But people are craving intimacy. Where can we actually find that? And, and, you know, I mean, you've talked about, I know you use Discord, TikTok, Mm -hmm. or uh, Twitch. There's a couple of other things that you do that 
where you found community, what is it like, where do you feel most at home online? That's moved over the years. Like it used to be the Lois and Clark uh, message boards. Mm -hmm. These days, yeah, it's not just Twitch overall, which is this massive platform and most of it's dedicating to gaming. And I have zero interest in watching someone else play video games. (laughs) But the music community there I have found to be very welcoming and full of really beautiful people. It's changed over the last few years. It's grown quite a bit. And as any community grows, it kind of starts to dissipate and you get more of a mix of people and you get less of that sense of community where everyone knows everybody else. And I haven't really been on Twitch this year just because I've been particularly exhausted to the point where just being in a live chat felt like too much. Yeah. So I haven't figured out where to go next. Been poking at a couple of forums, but I haven't found a new community yet. Yeah. Um, But I've still made some very close friends on Twitch that I keep up with on Discord. And we can have chats in their servers. We can DM and just sort of whatever group or configuration seems to feel right at the time. That's good. That's good. And I I do hope that, you know, I feel like a lot of us are just in this mode of consumption. And so we don't even know what's possible. We can build out our own spaces and there's plenty of things like Discord, right? There's plenty of spaces where you can go and build out your own community. Um, It's just, as you said, these these platforms are are pretty ubiquitous right now, like Facebook and Twitter. And it's hard. It's hard. I mean, look at what happened with Google Plus. It's really hard to get people to migrate to a new place when they are so entrenched. And and I don't even know how to explain this, but it is there is this sense of familiarity that you get with the UI of different platforms that makes you feel like you're comfortable there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you get used to how it works and you've gotten far enough along the learning curve that you feel like you know what you're doing and right. it becomes comfortable. But I think like with Google Plus, it was more, like, we're going to be Facebook, but not. Uh-huh. And everyone was, well, I've got all my friends on Facebook. You've got no one over there. I'm not going to be the first one to jump over there. Right. In philosophy class, we talked about the prisoner dilemma. The classic version is like, if you confess, you're allowed to go and the other person suffers. And like, if you both do, or if neither of you do, and and it's kind of a simple philosophical problem, but a boring one. So what was interesting in that class was he said, well, what if we zoom out? What if we look at a group prisoner dilemma and... Let's talk about transportation. And the more people who drive in cars, the more clogged the highway is. The more people who take the bus, the more efficient it is and better for everyone, Mm -hmm. except that individually, you're better off with a car because you can go directly from point A to point B and you're not stuck on the bus than trying to walk from the bus stop to wherever you're actually trying to go. And so the dilemma there becomes, it's better for me if I take the car, but it's better 
for everyone if we all take the bus and kind of framing the, de- the decision like that. And that's kind of how I see Facebook, where I think Facebook is overall a destructive force mm-hmm. and that it's better if everyone moves away from it, but no one's going to because everyone else is already there. And the whole point of it is to connect with the people that you know. Yeah. And so you're not going to go anywhere else unless you can drag all of them with you. And they're not going to come unless you've already gone. Well, that, how do we solve that problem? Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) How am I supposed to know? Well, you're smarter than I am. I I I, I have no no idea how to solve that problem. It's a very human problem, which is so funny because we're dealing with you know ones and zeros. But uh, yeah, it is a very weird problem to have. How do you uproot people or convince them that this thing that they're so comfortable with isn't actually good or useful for them? Um, and I don't like. I'm not a big Facebook hater, but I also feel like. I, I'm incredibly frustrated by how hard it is to to get people off of those platforms. As a, as a creative, as some, and also as somebody who really cares about the future of online life, right? Online culture. I would love to see a renaissance of people developing their own personal web properties again. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, getting back to this self-expression using uh, websites and or blogs or whatever you know really maybe even sacrificing some of the fancy bells and whistles and the ux for legitimate personal human creative content i guess what it is is that so much of how we use the internet now has turned into consumption as opposed to creativity right it used to be much more about engagement and back and forth and developing your own stuff and expressing yourself and learning and all of that and now it's become scrolling non-stop scrolling and liking and sharing which is just you know i don't know i don't think it's the best use of our mental faculties i mean people go where it's convenient to go and where it's easy to go i think there is quite a bit of creativity that's flourishing and you can see all sorts of digital art being produced and people making incredible videos and writing stories and um, all that, but it's more dispersed. And so if your interaction with the internet is, I'm just going to look through Twitter, then you're going to miss a lot of that unless you happen to be following people who are saying, come look what I'm doing offsite. Yep. But at the same time, the internet is vast and infinite and, if you go looking, there are people doing that thing that you're currently wondering about, whatever it may be. And maybe it's a niche community, but those are always the best ones in my experience. Yep. Is the little pockets of people who have come together to share the joy of their particular interest. And there it becomes a community and it becomes a bolstering of creativity. And that's usually where I feel most at home. Like some of the best stuff that I know of online, nobody knows about. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast, frankly, is like I I got sick and tired of the fact that the same famous or popular people keep getting all the same attention, right? And I was like, well, fuck that. I want 
I mean, I know some rad people that nobody's ever heard of. Why not share those stories? Because that's as interesting, if if not more interesting. And so I guess the problem is then that how do you, I mean, how do you resolve that? In in my mind, I guess, I guess it's something that I have to get over with. Because in my mind, I feel like more people should know about these independent folks, right? Or these individuals that I think are just diamonds. And on the other hand, the only way to get more attention is to engage in, you know, awful behaviors sometimes. And and by awful, I don't just mean bad acting. I mean, you know, just like gross self-promotion or doing outrageous things that get attention. And I don't, I don't want, I don't want that for those people that I care about. So I, maybe I just need to get comfortable with the fact that, that the best of the best <laughs> is only going to be known to a few people. And that's, maybe that's why it's good and valuable. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's what makes it precious, I guess. Yeah. Um, like, I don't want a huge platform. I don't want to be, like, recognized in the street by random people. Mm-hmm. I want to have a group of friends of a comfortable size that I can relate to. So to some degree, there is that. I don't know how you build up an audience. I've never done that. And it's been, it's a very hit or miss thing because you can look at the people who have successfully done it, but how much of that is luck? How much of that is years of trying and failing until the pieces do fall into place? And there's never any like magic secret to it other than doing what you do best and hoping that people connect with that. It's so unpredictable. Yeah. So I think that's all you can do is be yourself, do what you love and connect to the people who appreciate that. And if it grows, it grows. And if not, you're still doing what you love. I think that's right. Um, And I, I think, I think a lot of people have actually known that and it's taken me personally a while to get to that point. I don't know. I mean, I feel I feel good about doing exactly what you're saying right at this point in my life where I'm just like I don't I don't actually need to prove it to anyone and um and I don't want to make things for public opinion and I want to actually have legit community, not just I don't want fans, right? I don't want followers. Right. I want community around the things that I care about. And if that means less, uh, you know, quality over quantity, then I'm more than willing to do that. Uh, but I guess, I guess everyone has to come around to that point. I mean, it also depends on what you're trying to do. Like I'm on the internet to socialize and have an outlet and have fun. And you've been through a lot of jobs, but a fair number of them have involved being in charge of a social media platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where you know when you're doing that, then networking and getting attention and getting people to donate to the cause and engage with it is the purpose of it. And that's a whole different objective. Well, I like how you think. I consider you a man of reason. And to me, I think I've told you this before, I I spent many, many years avoiding reason (laughs) (laughs) for, for multiple, you know, for, because of the way I was raised, you know, I was, you've been through a lot. Yeah. And you've changed a lot. I have. Right. 
And, uh, you know, for me, I, there was a certain point in my life where I was like, I don't want to be deluded anymore. And I don't care if that means I have to just say, I don't understand, or I don't know, or if it means I have to accept that there are no answers at this point, I would rather do that than make something up or believe something that's not true. And there are not a lot of people that feel that way deep down, right? Almost, Mm. I mean, a, a lot of people really want to confirm their beliefs (laughs) and hopes as opposed to being open to reality as it is and so because of that I I I feel like I spend a lot of time tiptoeing around other people's beliefs and trying not to challenge them because I don't want them to be upset because that's something they're going to have to come to on their own it's not my job to shake people out of their delusions but because of that it's kind I I feel very um I feel lonely intellectually lonely sometimes and Mm. There are very few people that I think I can trust to have conversations that I need to have. And you're one of those people for me. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for that, um, for having you as that friend. I don't ever feel like I'm going to offend you or shock you or shake you because you are willing to, you're, you're just, you're so intellectually fearless. You're not, you're not a fool. And <laughs> that might be the best best compliment I can give someone. Yeah, it's one of the best I've gotten. Um, You're not a fool. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot that we can relate like that and that I can be that friend for you. And I think we should talk more than we have been. Yeah. Um, I hope the ambulance outside isn't too loud. No, no. You're, uh, uh, to let folks know you're in, are you in New York? Yes. Yes, you're in New York City. Um, and not too far from a hospital. Yeah, I'm surprised that that we haven't heard more of that. <laughs> yeah, I had a couple of fighter jets buzz that place uh, earlier this morning. Nice. Um, I'm like right on the river and helicopters fly up and down the river and sometimes airplanes too. Sometimes they get really loud. Yeah. Uh, but no, I have a lot of respect for you. You're a badass, whether you recognize it or not. And you've got, I think, clear vision and you, you don't take shit from things, from people or from reality. You deal with things as they are and you slog through it. And I've been really impressed by that. So having you say to me that I can do that for you and be one of the few people that you can trust to just talk to about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that that really means a lot. I'm touched. I'm glad. I'm glad because it's true. And, you know, there's got to be a reason why we've maintained our friendship for so long. There's value there. And, um, and that's the value for me. That is the story of the internet right? That the best case scenario story of the internet is that you find people that I otherwise, honestly, the chances of us ever having crossed paths in, you know, meat space, (laughs) if we hadn't both been on Twitter, uh, are pretty slim. So thank goodness for the internets, even, even when they suck. Yeah. It, it's been fantastic in that you can, no matter what you're into, no matter who you are, you can find people now 
who are like you, who understand you, who will relate to you as you are, who will reassure you that you're not the only one. I think that's done a lot for a lot of marginalized communities, like non-binary people, because I have a couple of non-binary friends Mm -hmm. and they would likely have had a great deal of difficulty finding anyone else who identified as non-binary if it hadn't been for the internet saying, oh, look, like there are non-binary people and they hang out over here and they use these hashtags and they, you know, you can get to know them even though they're on the other side of the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's also, of course, got a downside where the people with the ideologies that you least want to promote are able to find each other, connect, bolster each other, tell each other, this is normal, this is right, and you don't have to listen to all the naysayers. And that has been fostering a lot of evil, I think. And that's a problem I haven't been able to figure out. It's been very difficult coming to terms with that because, like I said back at the beginning, like I have this belief that pure communication is a key factor to making the world a better place and that if we could talk to each other and hear each other and understand each other and be honest with each other that we can build a better society that better understands each other and to some degree that's been happening but it the flood of communication has meant a flood of information sources and you have to pick and choose so of course you're going to choose the ones that tell you what you want to hear right and then that just radicalizes you because you surround yourself in this bubble and you become more and more detached from the center yeah that's troubling because the 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 more polarized things get the more difficult it is to do anything right to to make any kind of progress so i don't know We'll see. We'll see how it all shakes out. But I have faith that there are really smart people and really good people who are working to make things better on the internet and off. And so yes. we'll see. We'll just see. I mean, and and I consider you one of those people. So I was just going to say the same to you. Yes. Let us go forth and be good people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Paul, thank you. For taking time. I'm I know that you are tired and I am so grateful that you decided to save up some of your spoons for me today. And uh, I am looking forward to sharing this conversation with everybody else. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is the most social I've been in months, I think. Excellent. And it's always good talking to you. Absolutely. So thanks for having me on. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.